Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Sanjeev Goyal, and this is the Peak Human Labs podcast. And today, my guest is Dr. Richard Pither from Cytox Limited, a UK-based company has developed a polygenic risk score for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I thought this was such an important topic, uh, you know, because we really don't understand how to assess risk for patients who, have all, who may be at risk for Alzheimer's. And they've developed uh, what looks like a pretty accurate, maybe the most accurate test on the market right now. It's coming soon to US and Canada next month. And um, I thought Dr. Pither would be great to have on to the podcast so we can explain how the test works and why you should get it done if uh, you have any concerns about uh, your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, just on another side note regarding conflict of interest, I don't have any financial interest in Cytox Group and uh, not being paid any fee for having Dr. Pither on. Again, this is strictly because it's such an important topic. I hope you enjoyed today's talk with Dr. Pither. All right. So I thought this is such an important um, topic for our, for our viewers to, to hear and then see. So um, do you want to just go right in and, 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 and uh, start the screen share? Let's do that. Yeah, let me, uh, let me pull up my slides and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah. Perfect. And, and, and I hope you don't mind that I may jump in and ask some questions. Just please, to, please, please do that. Can I just check that you can see the slide? Perfect. They look great. Oh. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, look, thank, thanks again for the invitation to uh, speak about polygenic risk score again uh, today. Cytox has been developing GenoScore, which is our flavor of a polygenic risk score. And the aim of this product is to identify patients at the earliest stages who are at the highest risk of cognitive decline due to their inherited uh, Alzheimer's disease genetics. And, and we, we need a DNA sample for that. And that can come from a simple saliva sample, perhaps even taken from a patient via a kit in their own home or indeed by a clinician in the practice. And, and, the, and the big opportunity here is that by understanding risk at the very earliest stages, there are things we can go in and do to really mitigate the chances of that risk ever becoming apparent at the level of full-blown Alzheimer's disease. And as we'll see, that could be pharmacologic intervention, or it could be uh, perhaps more simply a change in lifestyle and uh, associated risk exposure. So, so there are really important reasons to understand this risk at the very earliest stages. And you know, this has really been thrown into highlight recently by the FDA's decision to approve aducanumab, uh, which is going to be commercialized as Aduhelm in the US initially. And, and this is for patients with, uh, who are amyloid positive due to their underlying Alzheimer's uh, condition at the early stages. Um, and importantly, this is the first new drug to be approved um, since 2003 for the treatment of Alzheimer's and the first ever that purports to actually treat the underlying cause of the disease, not just the symptoms. So it's, I think it's a really important step forward, despite all the controversy and despite the limitations of this drug. I think it does point the way forward um, for, for many other therapeutics that will be coming in the future. But what people do forget is that, you know, right now and today available to everyone are lifestyle and risk avoidance factors uh, that can be uh, introduced into a healthy living approach that can prevent or delay up to 40% of dementias. And we should not lose sight of that because that's a real prize, I think, that's still to be fully appreciated by the community. 
and uh, fully implemented. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics uh, of those risk factors that can be addressed today by everyone simply by so adopting you, uh, different lifestyle choices. Do you think that, so that the risk factor, just for our viewers to understand, will, can prevent and delay Alzheimer's dementia or just anything? That's the evidence, uh, Sanjeev. Yeah, there was a Lancet Commission paper that was published last year. Um, I, in fact, I cite that reference later in this slide deck, uh, which okay. identifies those risk factors. And, and this includes not just individuals who are pre-symptomatic, I the very you know, early um, preclinical stages of their disease, but also people with early symptoms as well. But by ag aggressively addressing uh, some of these lifestyle factors, you can actually halt the decline or indeed reduce the rate of decline of individuals who otherwise would go on to develop full-blown Alzheimer's. So yeah, um, it applies to Alzheimer's, it applies to other dementia types as well. And of course, with Alzheimer's disease, perhaps the most significant concern is the, you know, the loss of cognitive function uh, which actually is how our algorithm is trained and validated. So I think that that's, uh, again, it's a, a very tangible benefit to individuals um, that's available today if we can identify those at risk early enough and convince them to take the steps necessary to uh, to adopt those healthy living um, uh, elements. I just want to ask a question even before we get further into this, because I normally ask my guests, why did you devote your, why have you devoted your you know your professional life to this? Sure. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been working in this field for about 25 years. Uh, and uh, I first started working in Alzheimer's disease when I was uh, head of uh, R&D for the medical diagnostics division of GE Healthcare, General Electric Healthcare, a huge multinational company, um, which I'm sure you know about. And mm -hmm. primarily, I was working on the diagnostic imaging uh, elements of this. So in other words, looking for the presence of this amyloid protein that builds up uh, in Alzheimer's disease and can be linked to future decline and cognitive loss. So I was motivated, you know, uh, by understanding the disease, you know, 20, 25 years ago, but always understood that those high-end imaging solutions were not going to be accessible to many people uh, due to the high cost and the invasive nature. And therefore, we needed something more. We needed something that was more suitable for large-scale rollout very early on to identify those at risk, and perhaps then pointing um, them, those high-risk individuals, in the direction of um, more invasive, more expensive um, diagnostic interventions later in the course of their disease, um, and also, of course, ultimately directing them to these, um, uh, these healthy lifestyle and perhaps pharmacological treatments. Perfect. Okay, so if we move on, um, again, a lot of your uh, listeners will know that there are huge numbers of people, about 46 million people today estimated to be affected by Alzheimer's disease, and this is likely to double by the end of the decade, primarily driven by the fact that we're all living longer because we're living more healthily, and, uh, and that's a, a sort of a, a success of modern medicine, if you like. Um, the downside of this, of course, is that you know, we do need tests, therefore, to understand who's at greatest risk. And the, the tests that we have available today generally um, have uh, you know, major problems associated with them, not least the level of accuracy in really predicting cognitive outcome, which is the uh, outcome that most individuals are most concerned by. Uh, the invasive nature of lumbar puncture, for example, to, to find amyloid and tau fragments in the cerebral spinal fluid. 
and the very expensive nature of um, PET amyloid imaging, uh, for example, to look for uh, this toxic amyloid protein that builds up in the brain in the form of the, uh, uh, the plaque pathology. So, um, so we were motivated to look for a test that would, was able to be used at the very early preclinical stages, but that maintained a high level of accuracy and availability you know, throughout the world. And then that's where we came upon this uh, polygenic risk component. And that's where we started academic collaborations um, in the UK initially uh, with University of Cardiff and University College London with the leading proponents of, of, uh, uh, of academic versions of this test mm-hmm. that we then took and validated and modified to uh, into the, the product today that we call GenoScore. The way the test works is that the saliva sample is sent to a reference lab under the guidance of a physician. This is only available through um, uh, you know, medical uh, professionals. Uh, and then the results are sent back to the physician who discusses the concerns of the individual um, based on that result outcome, and perhaps also um, some other tests that may be carried out in parallel. For example, you know, a, a cognitive test battery, uh, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with. And it's together that the, uh, the, the cognitive test battery plus the genetics can give uh, an insight into particularly people who have early symptoms, but they're not sure whether those symptoms may or may not be due to a future risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So the so-called mild cognitively impaired group who may be a bit more forgetful, they might have a trouble with word, word recall, they might be you know, forgetting where they left their car keys you know, once too many times. Uh, these are the people who have early cognitive concerns that we can help. But of course, there's a whole bunch of individuals who are much earlier in this process who may have some sort of family history or you know, a relative, friends that have um, been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and they want to understand their own risk. Uh, and so this test, as we will see later, is very much suitable for those individuals who haven't yet experienced any symptoms, may have concerns based on that family history. And of course, you know, if an individual who's in that pre-symptomatic stage is found to be at high risk, then we might put them onto a monitoring regime using more invasive and expensive tests, Mm -hmm. such as lumbar puncture, such as PET imaging, or even volumetric uh, MRI scans to look for structural changes in the brain. Uh, at a later stage, you know, but only focus those efforts on people that have the high risk and therefore need closer attention. So the way the test works is that essentially we're scanning for uh, thousands, actually about 112,000 different DNA variants uh, that we all carry. And um, some of those variants that are spread across the genes in our genome can confer a little bit of additional risk for Alzheimer's disease and others can be protective. So what a polygenic risk test does, it looks in your DNA for the presence of these things and then adds them together in a weighted algorithm that we call GenoScore. And that allows us to then position people uh, into risk categories. So in other words, we can identify those people who are at high risk for developing the disease in the future and uh, those at lower risk, those perhaps somewhere in the middle, uh, and then make uh, with a physician, of course, allow that physician to make appropriate um, choices, perhaps in conjunction with other tests they may carry out, or certainly to, to set a kind of benchmark as to where this individual sits within a, uh, an overall risk distribution across the population. 
So I want to ask a question about this. Does that does that mean that? So you're saying that you looked at you look at thousands of these, of uh, I guess these SNPs, right? Um, is that correct? And that means there has to be enough research on each SNP to tell you what the weighted, how much actual additional risk that variation has. Is that correct? Like all that exists in the literature and. So um, not, not, not quite. So the, these algorithms uh, are actually trained on very large data sets uh, on the, on the, using something called genome-wide association studies. So uh, we, we've got basically databases with thousands of uh, subjects who went on to develop Alzheimer's disease, thousands of subjects, I'm talking actually tens of thousands of subjects in each case who did not. And then we do a kind of subtractive look wow. at the sequencing data which then highlights these different SNPs or variants, as you said, that link either to increased risk or decreased risk. Uh, and then what we do is we take the algorithm based on those weightings, and then we test the performance in a completely independent data set to make sure that the accuracy is maintained, not just in the training data, but in the uh, test data as well. It's Otherwise, like using we using uh, machine learning or AI. It's in very fact, much you, machine learning. You I mean, set, uh, and then you train, then you train it, and then you test it with the uh, real data. Is exactly so. To see and, how and, accurate and, it is. But that's exactly right. And and, and the uh, this is this algorithm in its academic form has been tested in multiple cohorts, including subjects not only who've been diagnosed clinically with Alzheimer's disease, but people who have a di clinical diagnosis along with the underlying amyloid and tau pathology as assessed either by PET or CSF testing. And that's a kind of gold standard because it's the clinical symptomatology plus those underlying pathologies that equals Alzheimer's disease versus some other dementia type. So it's really important that the testing is done in those incredibly well characterized clinical cohorts that are completely separate from the training set. Otherwise you risk overfitting essentially in statistical terms mm -hmm. uh, is there any concern about like uh you know uh, ethnic uh you know the yeah the type of population was tested on or like yes kind of on? Uh, absolutely there is i mean so the, the the all the training data and the test data that's available to the community at the moment is is really dominated by caucasian subjects um and so um, you know, there's no reason this test could not be run on any ethnic background, but the validation has been done in a Caucasian population so far. So the claims that we make are really restricted to that Caucasian background at the moment, but we are working on variants of this product uh, that are being validated in other ethnic backgrounds. So we have a, an in-house geneticist working with uh, patient cohorts um, that we are analyzing at the moment, which would allow us, we think in time, to be able to offer this test with a greater level of confidence to non-Caucasian subjects as well. So um, uh, the, the classic example of this is, is what you alluded to earlier with the APOE4 uh, association. So APOE4 association with Alzheimer's disease actually does vary across different ethnic groups. So um, it's more frequent for example, in African Americans, uh, but the but the but the uh, the so-called penetration or the impact of carrying E4 is is that bit lower. So we have to modify um, the impact or the parameters that we use in the algorithm to take account of those ethnic differences, and that takes time. 
but it also takes uh, access to well-validated clinical samples from groups of different ethnic backgrounds. So what could be the mechanism for why there would be ethnic variations if we've already looked at all the various SNPs already, like which could, I mean, what other factor could, yeah. could influence um, it, why, why it's different? The, the supposition here is that um, it's exactly the same set of SNPs that you would need to describe risk in any ethnic background. Yes. But the weightings that you would apply uh, actually link to two factors, uh, one of which is so-called minor allele frequency. In other words, how often do these SNPs actually crop up in one particular ethnic group or another? And, and, then, and then the so-called effect size, which is how much of an impact do they have in that ethnic background? And so um, the, the, an APOE4 is a great example where it occurs with a different level of frequency, for example, in African-Americans, but the effect size is different. And we think that the, the frequency is explained simply by different populations, uh, you know, uh, inheriting slightly different genetics over time. Um, and the effect size is probably due to um, the fact that these SNPs in isolation have a very modest impact uh, in, in, in associations with the genes to which they are, uh, you know, they co-locate. Um, and so the impact of any particular SNP will be contextualized based on the other SNPs that you have or don't have. So these things often occur, for example, in different signaling pathways. And so if you inherit, you know, one SNP, but not another in that pathway, it's likely to have less of an impact, for example, than someone who inherits multiple SNPs in that pathway. And this is, you know, this is going to link to ethnicity simply because of the, uh, you know, the way that genetics works through linkage disequilibrium, it's so-called. But it sounds like if, because you're looking at so many different SNPs, all of this, the differences between ethnicity should actually cancel out. Yes. Because I, I, in effect, you're looking at such a broad range that you have already uh, adjusted for the effect of the variation of difference. That's exactly what I think will turn out to be the case, uh, Sanjeev, but we need to prove that and we need to right. validate it before we can make claims. So right. Right. Um, I, 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 um, I, I, would, I, I wouldn't want to make uh, any great statements about the likely accuracy or the impact of accuracy in different groups, but, but certainly um, I think broadly speaking, the high, median, and low risk distribution is is probably going to be maintained, mm. but but within you know certain uh, you know certain sort of uh, you know not orders of magnitude difference, but sort of subtle differences, if you like. Got it. Okay. Sorry. Thanks. Appreciate that. Sure. Now, and if we look at the details behind this, I mean, th this is uh, a so-called Manhattan plot. Uh, which shows you some of the, uh, the SNPs and the genes to which they are, so are associated across the genome. Uh, and you can see here on the right-hand end, chromosome 19, APOE stands out because as we've been discussing, APOE4 links to increased risk. Um, and there are other APOE-like loci um, and genes throughout the genome. Uh, and as I said, in order to uh, to make the most robust product here, we did lots of work with the team at Cardiff University, the academic team, and we found that 112,000 gave us the uh, uh, the optimal performance in terms of the predictivity of the algorithm. 
Now, let's just think about APOE for a moment. So on the top left of this slide, you can see that, again, this is using example an example from the Caucasian population. About 25% have one or more copies of E4. 23% uh, the majority have uh, E3, E4. Uh, so they would be considered to be increased risk, but in no way uh, is the presence of E4 diagnostic in this context. Uh, conversely, a large port, part, part of the population in this case, 61% um, are E3 homozygotes, so they have two copies of the ApoE3 gene, which is not associated with increased risk. And yet we know that about 40% of Alzheimer's disease comes from these so-called E3 homozygotes. So the question is, can we stratify for the higher and lower risk E4 carriers? That will be a really useful thing to do. And also, can we find the high risk non-E4 carriers amongst that large E3 homozygote population. Uh, and if we look on the right-hand side of here, we can see that's the case. So this is um, looking at a, uh, the so-called ADNI cohort, which I'll talk about more in a moment. But we can see that we've, we've, we've shown a, a risk distribution based on polygenic risk score between zero and one on the x-axis. And then we can see um, we've color-coded by APOE genotype. We can see the E4 homozygote. So these individuals with two copies of E4, who we know to be at high risk, all distribute towards the right-hand end, the high-risk end of the polygenic risk distribution. Conversely, if we look at the, uh, the E3, E4 heterozygotes, we can see that there are some very high-risk E4, E3 heterozygotes, but equally, there are some much lower-risk individuals as well. So uh, what we're showing here is that we can pull out high and low risk individuals, even amongst the E4 carriers. And very importantly too, in the E3 homozygotes, a large proportion of the population, we can see that despite having no E4, there are still some very high risk individuals. And conversely, there are some very low risk individuals as well. So this is demonstrating very nicely that you can pull apart risk regardless of ApoE4 carrier status. That's a really important, um, step forward both for clinicians trying to understand risk with their patients, but of course also for pharmaceutical companies looking to recruit high-risk individuals into clinical trials uh, using um, more appropriate genetic tools rather than just the presence or absence of the E4 allele. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. And, yeah, that does. I thought that chart was really powerful, yes. Okay, so let me just come back to the ADNI cohort for a moment, because this is a really important uh, longitudinal research study that started over 15 years ago by Professor Mike Weiner at the University of San Francisco in California. Uh, and Mike um, has been studying individuals who entered the ADNI study either with no symptoms at all or with early uh, mild cognitive impairment or, or perhaps even with early Alzheimer's disease. Um, and what we've shown, we've, we've been able to access data from that cohort to prove the um, performance. This is the independent data set in which we proved the performance of our GenoScore polygenic risk approach. So the first thing we did was we looked at the distribution of polygenic risk amongst the uh, Alzheimer cases here in this pink color on the right-hand side at the top. And again, you can see these all have high polygenic risk. And then the aged matched uh, cognitively normal controls in blue are at the lower end of the distribution. So we can pull apart those two populations uh, very nicely uh, with an accuracy of over uh, 84%. But what we really want to know is not 
just a kind of cross-sectional look, but we want to see whether we can predict something about the future. And so um, we used a so-called uh, longitudinal analysis, whereby we tested individuals who came into the ADNI study uh, with a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. Uh, and then we, uh, we distributed them or we, um, uh, we categorized them as uh, low genus score, 0.6 and below, high genus score, 0.6 and above. And then we asked what happened to those individuals over the next four years uh, from an MCI baseline. And we can see that those individuals with a low genus score remain cognitively stable using this uh, CDR sum of box mm -hmm. uh, rating composite. Uh, whereas those with a, a genus score of 0.6 and above uh, declined significantly over that four-year period. A change of 0.5 units in any one year is considered clinically significant. So you can see from as early as six months, certainly by two years, these two groups are pulling apart very clearly. Uh, mm -hmm. And that would be useful information for a physician to have, but obviously also very useful for a pharmaceutical company wanting to um, uh, stratify subjects at the highest risk of cognitive decline in order that the company could show that their drug had a meaningful impact in that population. And um, a little bit more data, uh, we can see that the, the polygenic risk actually correlates with some of those biomarkers that we were talking about earlier. So amyloid and tau in the cerebral spinal fluid is considered a gold standard for identifying Alzheimer subjects at the highest risk of uh, future decline. So we can see here that the Alzheimer, this is a, a kind of heat map distribution, high polygenic risk. So the Alzheimer cases in blue have high polygenic risk and they have a high tau amyloid load in their cerebral spinal fluid, age matched cognitively normal controls, low polygenic risk, low tau and amyloid. And then the early MCIs and the, and, and the late MCIs, so late in purple, look very Alzheimer-like. They have a high polygenic risk and uh, high amyloid tau in the uh, CSF. Early MCIs are more distributed. So you've got individuals here uh, with a, a high polygenic risk who are yet to become biomarker positive. So this is showing that you can identify individuals at high risk of future uh, deterioration. And we can see that on the right-hand side because what we've done here is overlay individuals from that mm -hmm. previous study who declined cognitively from an MCI right. starting point. And we can see here that uh, the individuals who declined have high polygenic risk, high tau amyloid load above the positive cutoff for biomarkers, whereas those who remain cognitively stable mostly have a low polygenic risk, although there are some individuals with a higher polygenic risk who've yet to cross that biomarker positivity line and therefore become symptomatic. So this is showing that the genetics correlates with known biomarkers, uh, but without the need to, to go in and take lumbar puncture samples or even PET uh, amyloid images to identify those at highest risk. And it might be more predictive. It looks like it's predictive before the actual uh, tau and amyloid starts to deposit. I think it, it will predict those who are most likely to become tau and amyloid positive and therefore at highest risk of decline. So I think that's that's a very exciting intervention because, or opportunity for intervention, because as we've seen with the approval of aducanumab, that's largely been approved on uh, the basis of biomarker changes rather than overt changes to cognition. Uh, so I think this is really pointing a good way forward for 
uh, pharma companies to think about how they stratify populations for, for drug development activity at that very early preclinical stage where cognitive endpoints are not useful to uh, to power clinical development studies. Yeah, it looks like some people who are, go on to develop uh, Alzheimer's may be negative in tau and amyloid at the beginning, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's yeah. certainly, po- that's certainly possible. Up. I mean, of course, if you're diagnosing on the basis of clinical symptoms only, then differential diagnosis between Alzheimer's, vascular, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia can be problematic. So uh, yeah, this can offer, a, a, you know, another level of specificity, if you, if you like, on, on top of those, uh, you know, more commonly used clinical parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is really exciting new data. So this, you're the first to see this, uh, Sanjeev. This is um, being presented later this week at the Alzheimer Association International Congress. I'm going to attend uh, which that. Is, yeah. Which is happening in Denver. Yeah. Uh, I would love to be there in person, but but travel restrictions doesn't allow for that for the moment. So we're doing uh, we're doing this work online and and virtual presentation. But this is um this is actually showing the utility of polygenic risk in the pre-symptomatic at-risk individuals. So here we've used um, again data from ADNI, but using the so-called preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite or PAC score, uh, which is sensitive in that transition from uh, basically no symptoms to very early symptoms rather than in the MCI population where you're looking at overt clinical symptoms moving into something um, more substantial associated with early Alzheimer's disease. So this is proving that uh, we have utility again both in the E3, E3 homozygous as well as the E3, E4 heterozygous. So in this case, the lower the PAC score, the, the more cognitively impaired an individual is and we can see in the E3 cognitively normal subjects um, over a, a five-year period, uh, the individuals who scored um, the lower at the lower end of the polygenic risk range remain cognitively stable, mm-hmm. whereas those um, in this case with, with a threshold of 0.7 or above, after three years started declining cognitively um, towards MCI. Uh, that's a, that's a very exciting result in that E3, you know, non-E4 carrier group. Right, right. Uh, equally, we can see in the E4 carrier group, we can differentiate between those who remain stable over that period. And again, those who at three years began, you know, begin to decline cognitively. So regardless of E4 carrier status, uh, we can see our ability here to differentiate high risk from low risk group by setting out threshold. Very exciting. So, um, of course, Age and genetics uh, are unavoidable. Uh, so, um, and, and age is the biggest risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, along with your inherited genetics. And uh, the the point about age is that it's really a surrogate measure for um, the accumulation of lifestyle and environmental risk, which, together with your genetics, add up to the overall risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so the importance of, of, of understanding these non-variables is that you can then go in and do something about risk factors that you can address successfully. So two classic examples of comorbidity associated with Alzheimer's risk would be hypertension, uh, which in most people is relatively easily treatable uh, using a, a combination of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic intervention and type 2 diabetes, again, which is, you know, is manageable 
uh, if, if caught early in most individuals. So those are two things that if you knew you were at high risk of Alzheimer's disease because of your genetics, you would make sure that you managed aggressively uh, through early detection and, uh, and then treatment as and when those risks became real. Uh, but there are all sorts of other things as well. Healthy diet, lots of exercise, uh, maintaining a stimulated brain through uh, further education, learning, just social activities. All those things really add up to, uh, you know, highly protective and beneficial activities that, again, can be used even in early symptomatic individuals, but um, very importantly, in uh, pre-symptomatic at-risk individuals. So a whole bunch of things that you can do. And, and we've um, we've kind of made those slightly more accessible here on this page um, by by pulling out um, some of those 12 risk factors which have been identified both by the Lancet Commission Review uh, last year, but very importantly through a series of studies conducted by Mia Kifabelto and her, co uh, her colleagues called the Finger Studies, uh, where again longitudinal follow-up uh, um, of uh, over 1,200 subjects has shown that changes in uh, nutrition, exercise, cognitive training, uh, monitoring metabolic and cardiovascular risk factors can have a real benefit, uh, a measurable benefit in up to 40% of uh, dementia uh, sufferers and uh, some of the specifics associated with rec exercise, uh, both physical and, and mental, health, eat, eating healthily, stopping smoking, alcohol limits, limited alcohol intake, those sorts of things were shown objectively to have a very major impact and they're available to everybody. That's the important message here. Yep. So um, because of all those things, we're making this polygenic risk score, that we, which we call Genus Score, available. Uh, it's being uh, managed uh, through our partners in the US and Canada who are Infinity Biologics and we're finishing off the final technical validation work that will allow Infinity to introduce this study or this um, uh, product with us um, as a so-called laboratory developed test under the CLIA accreditation. And uh, Infinity are able to provide that into clinics and to physicians in Canada, as well as uh, other parts of the United States. And we expect that launch to be happening uh, very late August, early September. So just over a month's time now. Uh, and it's uh, managed through a, a physician-accessed uh, portal, a web portal. A physician registers and then orders the test uh, via that portal, and kits are sent out, samples collected, and then sent back to a reference lab and a report generated that goes back to that physician for then talking through uh, with their patients. Uh, and that whole process uh, takes about two to four weeks, up to four weeks from the receipt of sample. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Lines of data. This is a snapshot of a, essentially a, a, a three-page uh, document that we provide on the left-hand side, which reiterates those risk and actions that, risks and actions that can be taken. We provide information as to where the individual sits in the overall population, whether they're higher risk or not, and also how that score is likely to evolve with time uh, based on increasing age. Uh, so, so that's uh, you know a very uh, important piece of content, of course, but the, uh, I also want to stress on this page that we are now getting feedback from patients as to how they have found the test and their experience in, uh, in dealing with it. So we've got one uh, individual here who um, 
uh, is known to us. Uh, he volunteered uh, to, to share his experience. Uh, he, he was looking based on family history. A father and an uncle had been uh, you know, suffering from dementia before they died. He wanted some reassurance about his own personal risk. Very physically and intellectually active, despite being 76 years of age, just taking up uh, canoeing, uh, runs mountain marathons. You know, there's not much that can be added to his, uh, uh, you know, physical regime, I, I suspect. And, and mentally, he's still a very active uh, engineer. He scored uh, in the sort of 50th percentile, which means that he's not at increased risk. He's not above average risk. And for him, that allayed his concerns. He had actually already worked out personal action plans in the event that his score came back in the at-risk category. He was prepared to adopt uh, you know, further changes to his lifestyle if, if he thought that would help. Um, and importantly, of course, he wanted to get all his uh, future plans in place as well. So that was something he saw as a real benefit from understanding uh, his likely trajectory in the future. Um, and I think this all kind of adds into this picture that we've seen uh, not just in Alzheimer's, but in many other conditions, that tests like these need to be, uh, in order to, for the uh, patient to benefit, the information has to be well understood and meaningful to those patients, and if necessary, actionable. You know, it's it's all very well knowing you have a certain risk profile, but also, but more, most importantly, you want to know there's something you can do to modify the outcome, the likely outcome. And of course, having that reinforced by a clinical professional uh, is really important. And uh, I think that's been seen time and time again in, in across multiple uh, disease types. So just a word to finish. Um, if I haven't said it already, this test is coming to Canada and to the US soon. Um, if you're a physician and you would like to register your interest, uh, you can go to the web portal, www.genoscore-lab.com forward slash register. And uh, that will then um, allow us to uh, put you on our list and get in touch and, and talk you through the, the process for, uh, for signing up. If you want to know more, uh, more detail behind the test and have a more in-depth discussion, uh, then I would encourage you to contact our commercial partners in the US uh, at alzheimer's at vanguardpharma.com. And we'd be more than happy um, working with Vanguard to, to set up a call to go into as much detail and answer as many questions as you may have uh, so that you're well prepared to, uh, to offer this test uh, to your patients at the earliest possible opportunity. And I think, you know, we all need to be aware that with the approval by the FDA of uh, the aducanumab product from Biogen, uh, there's likely to be uh, an increased level of interest in understanding risk so that patients can begin to know whether they might be eligible for that treatment in due course. So um, I think being being prepared now for that uh, wave of interest is a really important thing that we can that we can all do. Thanks very much for your attention. No, that's, that's excellent. I thank you so much for sharing this. A couple of quick questions I had. Um, the uh, You said about a month it's coming to US and Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, I can't give you an absolute date yet, but it'll be right at the end of August or very early September. There's the uh, the, the Labor Day holiday, I think, in September uh, is something like the 6th of September in, in the US. Um, so it's, it's going to be around that sort of date, I think, Sanjeev, to be confirmed. But that's what we're working towards at the moment. Okay. And what's the cost looking like? 
So um, that that depends. So we work on a practice by practice basis, uh, depending on you know the the, the likely volumes, and you know uh, you know we we can we can come to you know arrangements based on uh, you know those sorts of projections. So again, that's why I would encourage individual physicians to come come talk to us. The, okay, so they would they would be buying it from you and then potentially charging the patient. That's how. Yeah, at the moment, there's no direct reimbursement associated with this test. We're, we're working on uh, those sorts of access studies uh, so that you know reimbursement through insurance or mm. national healthcare schemes ultimately uh, you know, to cover the cost of that. But that takes time. Yes. Uh, in the first instance, we're making this available through um, private pay um, practices uh, where um, individual patients are willing to pay for this test. Uh, and of course, you know, we will we will agree a, a price to charge the clinician and the practice, and it's up to them what they charge the patient. But um, this is a you know discussion that we will have on a, a case by case basis. Perfect. Um, and uh, in the UK, it's already uh, it's already rolled out. Is it already sure? In the UK, this is rolled out, and and in Europe, in fact, as a CE marked in, in vitro diagnostic test overseen by the uh, MHRA, the Medicines Healthcare Regulatory Agency in the UK. So yeah, we've got clinics set up in, in uh, the UK and in Spain, and we've got various other uh, sites around Europe uh, talking to us now about how to get hold of this test. There's interest. Um, I mean, we're getting patients coming to us directly as well. So what we like to do in that case is uh, we, we like to be able to direct them to the nearest uh, registered clinic in their area and then leave it to the clinician to discuss, you know, exactly the the needs of that individual patient and and, and whether or not this test may be right for them. That's a a discussion between patient and physician that Cytox doesn't get involved with directly. And is Cytox um, helping to educate physicians on how to do the counselling? Sure. Yeah, we've produced um, quite a lot of literature actually, which we can distribute to physicians to um, help them prepare. We'll set up calls to take them through the content of a report, you know, and uh, and then how they might communicate that uh, back to a patient. Uh, and most importantly, of course, with the emphasis on some of these actions that can be taken with clinical oversight in some cases to uh, to mitigate risk in the case of a high risk individual. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. This is great. And, and uh, I'll uh, put the, I'll put the links in the, in the show notes so people can click on them to register. Uh, the healthcare providers can register on genoscore-lab.com slash register and uh, also the email if they want to learn more. Is that, is that okay? That's great. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Richard. I'll, uh, I'll let you know when it's, it's all up there and uh, yeah, let, if you have any feedback, then that, that's great for me as well. Sure. Thanks very much, Sanjeev. Really appreciate the interest and uh, great talking to you. Okay.